This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. From the New Books Network, this is New Books and Geography. I'm your host, Dino Kadic. For most people, geopolitics is something that happens out there, in boardrooms and on battlefields. But critical geographers, and feminist political geographers in particular, are showing how the geopolitical is something that comes into being in the intimate and the everyday. Enter Jennifer Fleury and Rachel Lair's 2017 book, The Carpetbaggers of Kabul and Other American-Afghan Entanglements. Intimate Development, Geopolitics, and the Currency of Gender and Grief. The Carpetbaggers of Kabul takes us on the ground with more than a decade of field research and offers critical perspectives that highlight the ways in which post-conflict development works to further American power and not, necessarily, respond to the people it should be accountable to. In documenting the coercive power of white saviors, they show how the discourses of geopolitics have real material effects for people on the ground. And in writing this book, they take us to a place that relatively few academics have been able to access. We are so lucky to be joined by not one, but both of the authors today. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Fleury is Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Colorado Boulder, and Dr. Rachel Lear is Research Associate at UC Boulder. Rachel, Jennifer, welcome. Hello. So to start out, could you each please just tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to do work in this context? So um, this is Jennifer Fleury. I'm, uh, as you said, an associate professor at University of Colorado Boulder, and I um, started researching Afghanistan for my dissertation research when I was a PhD student at uh, Pennsylvania State University and continued um, conducting research as part of my uh, assistant professorship at at Dartmouth College. And that's where uh, Rachel and I met, because at that time I was uh, doing an examination of the international community working in Kabul, mainly uh, both humanitarian and development. And at that time, Rachel was running an NGO in Afghanistan. And so we met, we realized we lived close to each other and we began working together and collaborating. And over that time, the data that I collected from uh, for my research and her work on the NGO led to the information that's in the book. Yeah, and that was um, almost 15 years ago, ago right? Yeah, yeah. so I think, we, I think we met actually at a conference in 2005, 2005 yeah. in Ohio, um, well, Conference on Afghan Women's Leadership, something like that. This is Rachel. <laughs> and um, and we realized that we actually lived within an hour of each other, not in Ohio, but in um, New England, and, um, and began to collaborate. I'm, I'm actually a linguist. I'm I'm kicking and screaming my way into geography. <laughs> I'm dragging her, dragging kicking and geography. screaming. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm actually a linguist and work on, uh, and for many years I've worked on the languages um, in and around Afghanistan. My dissertation was actually a grammar of a minority language um, spoken in Afghanistan called Pashayi. So, um, so I came sideways into geography. <laughs> So how did this project kind of both as a research endeavor that spans more than a decade, a really long time, um, and like an actual book um, where you have kind of these specific arguments, how did that come into being? Um, right. That's a great question. So so originally part of um, Rachel and I's work together is we were really both concerned with the misinformation about Afghanistan that was perpetuated through the U.S. media, particularly in the mid-2000s. 
So we started working with uh, the New Hampshire Humanities Council because we both uh, lived in that area to do a series of talks basically at public libraries, like public talks, not necessarily academic ones, to the general public about Afghanistan and and, um, to sort of challenge some of the myths about women, about gender issues, about home life, about families. Um, And so both... Rachel's research, which much or and and experience in Afghanistan, which was much more rural, and mine, which was much more urban and kind of geopolitical focus as well as uh, development analysis. We kind of combine those into these series of talks, and then after after you know several years of doing that, we, we were like, you know, maybe we should try and turn this into something written because we're only really reaching a limited audience that is where we could drive to in a day, you know, basically. Um, and so uh, we also both. Uh, worked a little bit with the Choices Program, which is a, a teacher training program out of Brown University um, uh, to that basically focused on uh, providing more rich and nuanced information to like K-12 teachers. So, so I, I would say both of those experiences kind of led us to think through uh, writing this down as a book that was both academic, but had had a sort of accessibility that, you know, could be used in classrooms beyond what we were doing, you know, just kind of as two individuals doing these library talks and um, teacher trainings. Right. And it was actually at a time, because it was in the you know, mid-2000s, mm-hmm. when people were still really interested in Afghanistan, <laughs> yeah. where people would come to a public library on a given evening and hear about, Af- wanted to hear about Afghanistan, had read all the books. We often would start by asking what books they'd read about Afghanistan. And so we had a lot of uh, public uh, experts, so to speak, about <laughs> Afghanistan. And what we also were doing at the same time um, was studying the population Asian, of people. Right, so we, right, right. we were actually collecting surveys from them about what they knew about Afghanistan before and after the lecture <clears throat> as a way of um, gauging, you know, what the uh, general American self-selecting public you know, felt about it. So that's where we started. Mm-hmm. And then our, our respective experience and research in Afghanistan is how we came up with this understanding of how gender had become this currency in Afghanistan, because so many of the organizations I was examining or doing interviews with, you know, were talking about the importance of having an Afghan woman in their office or hiring an Afghan woman, not nece- not necessarily even to help that particular woman, but to, ha- to have this perception of being, you know, someone who was gender mainstreaming or, or this perception of being like, we're so progressive because we have an Afghan woman woman working in our office or we're supporting Afghan women projects. But then when we would talk to, or, you know, we're, and Rachel's own experience trying to run an NGO, like the sort of ways in which her organization was being rep- misrepresented by some of the large organizations like USAID or some of the uh, kind of bigger U.S.-based organizations that were trying to, and, and, the, and the United Nations, you know, were trying to represent what the U.S.-led a military aid and development mission was doing in Afghanistan related to women. So we were seeing this kind of mismatch between the the kind of, you know, snapshot picture of supporting women in Afghanistan and then the realities of what was actually happening. And then other researchers, you know, just like reading the literature and other um, academics that were doing really interesting um, ethnographic work were basically finding very similar things that we were finding. And so that 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 kind of motivated us to move from uh, just this this sort of kind of basic library talk analysis to really diving in deep theoretically into this kind of idea of currency and how women were being exchanged uh, for the benefit of other organizations and not necessarily for those women specifically. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to the, that notion of currency in just a second. Um, but first, you, you noted that a lot of the the work, or a lot of people were familiar with work on Afghanistan. And I'm guessing a lot of the books that they had read were by journalists, and there are fewer, many fewer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, just like logistically, how was this research possible? Because there are all of these mechanisms in the university um, that make it very difficult to do research somewhere like Afghanistan. I don't want to speak for Rachel. I mean, she she went in a different mechanism, but I I was. I was lucky enough. So when I was in um, grad school, there was a lot of resistance to me doing go, go, go. And at that time, I was I was mainly going to Pakistan because the organization I was looking at was based in Pakistan at that time, and they've obviously since moved back to Afghanistan. But um, so the so there was there was a lot of 
resistance, but I had a very supportive advisor who, uh, Lorraine Dowler, who was just, you know, cause she studied the IRA. So she was like, you can do this and we're going to figure this out. And so, so that gave me the support to do that. And so then when I, when I was at Dartmouth, um, there was, there was some resistance, but not as much you know, as long as I just filled out all the right forms saying that I wouldn't, you know, sue the university if something bad happened or whatever. Um, and I think cause I had already had experience in that region that there wasn't as much resistance and it, it, it's also a private system in the U S so it didn't have the same kind of um, protocols as, as more of a state university. I think that that was part of it too. Uh, so, it, you know, it, but at the same time, the way we go to Afghanistan is, is different than a lot of the kind of aid development community and the military community. I mean, we, we tend to uh, we work, you know, pretty much directly with Afghans. We don't, we, we actually joke that our security is no security, meaning that we don't like go in convoys. We don't have any kind of, we don't hire any security firm or, you know, we just sort of live with, with live and work with Afghans in a way that, that they, that they understand security. So, so, so to me, like the most comfortable way of being in Afghanistan is traveling with, with uh, Afghans in a way that they understand security in the country, not the way most internationals understand it, which is with barricades and flak jackets and armored vehicles and all of that. Cause to me, those seem like targets more than they seem secure, but that's just my, because of my personal experiences from the beginning. And I think Rachel, it's pretty similar. Yeah, for and you. I actually lived in, um, in uh, some pretty rural parts of Afghanistan for extended periods and, um, I didn't have any trouble from my university doing that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in some ways it's easier for, frankly, for women to do the kind of research we're doing because we can, you can hide. We're both short. We both are, you know, like we can wear local dress and kind of blend in, which is much harder for men to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, because they're taller, they, you know, it's harder, like, we can hide our faces, we can hide our, the the way we look, and, and, and Afghans are all colors, frankly, you know, so even being lighter skinned doesn't, doesn't always um, make you stand out, because you're wearing so much clothing, so that's another way to, that we're able to do this work. And and we should say that we have um, such strong relationships and such strong contacts that, um, yeah, yeah. Like we, we just, you know, we follow the lead of the of the Afghans that we're with. Right. And, and we've been working with the same Afghans since the early, or, or you even longer, but me since the early 2000s, I've been working with the same, you know, group of people. And we've, we've sort of gained more people as part of our research team over the years, but we have these really strong trust-based relationships that uh, that make us feel secure and make us keep going back. I mean, the point for us, very much is not to endanger the people who we're with. And if it doesn't feel like a good time, they'll let us know or a good place or anything. Right. Yeah. And so we're willing, like we've, we've had trips planned that we'd cancel because we were just told it's not a good time. And so, you know, we, we, we would never do this research if, you know, knowingly putting anyone else at risk. So, yeah. So to the point of kind of your network of relations in Afghanistan, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with um, kind of the the context of Afghanistan, what's happened over the past two decades, America's longest war. Um, But if you could give us a little bit of background and particularly kind of things that people might not know, having just observed Afghanistan in the media from the US or Europe. Well, <laughs> there's so, so many things. Well, I always like to start off with saying that Afghans are some of the funniest people I've ever met. They're, uh, they, they love to tell jokes and stories, and there's a lot of practical joking. And um, it's much, much, in fact, I just wrote an article in Political Geography about this because I felt like it really needed, we really needed to, you know, address that in an academic way, but also in just a general way that it's, that humor is such a, an important part of the culture, an important part of how people kind of sort of make their way in everyday life. Um, I would also say, you know, there's so much misinformation about women in Afghanistan. I mean, uh, yes, life can be hard and there, there's suffering and hardship for, for both women and men, but, you know, women have a particular experience of it. But there also are incredibly strong women that do amazing things that never make it to the media. And, and, and oftentimes the women that do are in the, the sort of public eye in the West, or at least in the U S 
are not women that are terribly well-respected always. Not, some of them are and some of them aren't. But so that's kind of an interesting thing too, is who gets propped up by the, by the U.S. as being like the lead, women leader in Afghanistan and how she's, at, you know, how she's actually thought about locally can sometimes be a real huge mismatch. Yeah, big disconnect. Big and also disconnect, that, um, yeah. Uh, over the course of these many years, there are often those women who so-called who who speaks you know you don't see my fingers going close yeah, yeah. she's uh, doing know, scare quotes <laughs> or amplify the voices as they like to think of afghan women um with absolute zero legitimacy to do so and right or with very little knowledge i mean it's amazing to us you know as as academics and people who study afghanistan how many people or you know women both western and and some you know women from afghanistan but in the diaspora who who know very little actually about the country but are are considered to be spokespersons for the country, and we don't. I don't even think of us as spokespersons. Yeah. You know, like yeah, like, like the more we learn, the more we realize how little we know. You know, uh, you know. I feel like this is this is a lifelong journey to to understand the the complexities and complications and contradictions of this culture and and and, and people in Afghanistan. So. I mean, I wouldn't even call myself an expert, and and but I spend you know ninety percent of my life studying this way. So, you know, so I think the other kind of misconceptions are also about like how people understand security, what what people think about um, as uh, the the future of Afghanistan, how the, the diversity of understanding of politics in the country that isn't just ethnically based. You know, I mean that's part of it, but there, you know, within ethnic groups, there's a lot of diversity. You know, within. Uh, and that women are not all the same. I mean, part of what we're looking at now is, you know, this expectation that women are all going to, like, come together as a collective and fight patriarchy when there's actually a lot of diversity among women. And, and there's ideological diversity and there's methodological diversity about, how, like, even when women do agree on particular issues, like ending violence against women, for example, the the way in which they they think the, the, the way in which to do that is quite different across various groups and even individuals of women. So Jennifer's getting out of our current. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting into it. Yeah, well, we're doing interviews right now. That's what, that's why it's on my mind. But, but it's also, you know, this, the other ways of thinking about Afghanistan as I think part of what we, you know, in our kind of soundbite culture, we want to just sort of have this package understanding of Afghanistan rather than trying to under, like really think of it as this sort of, you know, diverse and complicated place. Um, and I, and I, and I, I'm trying to think of other examples of I'm where just, I was just like, going, my around. head goes right back to follow the same. Yeah. 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 The author, uh, the book, what is it? The kite, kite runner. runner. And just how that between the kite runner and a thousand um, and, and, and the, um, the, um, three cups of tea, those, oh, Greg uh, Morrison, those yeah, yeah, those kind of define for, uh, a generation of Americans what Afghanistan is. And that's so, uh, those two books and the images of Steve McCurry, I'll just put all those names yeah. there, as being so problematic in creating um, a, a visual and narrative of Afghanistan that is just, That's very Orientalist and not, yeah, and so, doesn't necessarily such a disservice. really represent Afghans. And I mean, Afghans, I know that not that many have read Kite Runner, but the ones that I do like absolutely hate that book. And I just think it's such a, it's such a problematic and false portrayal of Afghanistan, and someone you know, grow up there, and of someone who didn't grow up there, you know, and so so it's it's definitely a book that Americans can digest and and think is beautiful, but not necessarily a, a you know positive or even appropriate representation of Afghanistan. So that's that's definitely part yeah. of it. So I'm glad we're naming names. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, in a sense, you named a name in, in the title of the book, The Carpetbaggers of Kabul. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about who the Carpetbaggers of Kabul are and how, how they got there? Actually, um, yeah. I, I think um, what part, um, to, to preface that, we came up with that name long before we had the book. Oh, yeah, the, actually, yeah. But, but um, and, and then at some point, it became clear to us that not everybody even knew what a carpetbagger was anymore, and that that was something missing in sort of Americans' education of their own it. country. Right, you know? right. Because, like, people, most people our age really understood that title, but, like, so, so even some of my graduate students were like, what's a carpetbagger, you know? And so that's why we, we write in the sort of very early part of the book that, I mean, carpetbagger comes from the American South where war, after the Civil War, 
Northerners would come down to the southern U.S. to basically profit on the post-war reconstruction. And, and we were seeing that happen in Afghanistan all the time. And then also the trade in carpets. So it was kind of a little bit of a play on words, too, of so many individuals and organizations making tremendous amount of money on the backs of poverty and, and war survivors. And so so to us, the carpetbaggers are... are in, in many ways, these mm-hmm. big, big aid organizations and, um, you know, large, uh, not not just the aid and development organizations, but all the kind of auxiliary economies. <laughs> uh, economies around it. So like logistics companies, construction companies, private military, private security, all of those different organizations that and individuals and that what, were yeah, making we're tremendous. Names, right. It wasn't just foreigners. It's also Afghans. Who yeah, yeah. A lot of Afghan passports, passports. Could come back and, you know, like the expat community coming yeah. back and making a tremendous living. So because of our, you know, research ethics, we can't name specific individual people. But I mean, organization wise, you know, I mean, you have, you know, USAID and, and the UN and, um, and, and, and a ton of other international aid and development organizations from various countries throughout the world, you know, just pouring money into Afghanistan. But where that money went was, uh, that was what, what, that's where the carpet bagging comes in because there was, for example, there was so much subcontracting. So, so a big aid project would come and say to, to um, rebuild a road in, in Afghanistan. And then, so it would, it would, so you have the, the, the big, you know, wh- whether it was USAID or Asia Foundation or whoever would pour the money in and then it would go to uh, a pro- usually a private for-profit implementing partner. partner. And then that partner would then hire a, a local, you know, Afghan organization and then or they would subcontract to multiple different organizations. And e- in each of those kind of experiences of subcontracting, you have a layer of money that's just like taken off for different, whether you want to call it corruption or war profiteering, like that was happening pretty consistently. And so by the time they built the road, they didn't have enough money for, you know, decent labor or, 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 or trained labor or to train laborers or for decent materials. And so within a year, the road would be totally crumbled. You know, I mean, you had buildings being built without rebar that, that fell, down, that fell yeah. down. I mean, we know Tragic. someone who was killed or her, her house collapsed on her. So, you know, you know, so these kinds of war profiteering actually had incredibly uh, disastrous material effects to Afghans that were just trying to kind of make their way in this new so-called post-conflict time period in Afghanistan. And I remember so. when you were doing your preliminary research and you were asking people what their monthly salaries were. Oh, yeah. And you were like, is it 5000 or 10000 a month? And the, the person was like, thumbs are higher. 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 Until you yeah. came to like 30000 a month was right. kind of Thir- yeah. dollars we're talking No, about. in fact, this one woman who was very lovely and who had worked in the aid community, because I mean, I was pretty naive. I was like, I can't imagine someone making more than $5,000 a month in Afghanistan, right? And, um, and, and she said, said to me, you know, it, it's more like 30 to 40,000 a month that people were making, which yeah. was just shocking to me in my naivete at the time. And now that's just so standard, you know, so that you had, uh, and in fact, some of the, like one other thing that I think is actually in the book, you know, this one woman said, let, let me explain it to you, you know, internationals make $250 an hour and Afghans make $250 a month. Like just, just to show you the, 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 the massive distance, like fractional distance in salaries. And I, and, you know, I mean, in some ways you can understand that some of that pay has to be different because of the cost of living in two different places, but people were making excessive amounts of, of, of money. And that money wasn't staying in Afghanistan. Even Afghans who were making high salaries, they were parking their money in Dubai or other countries. Yeah. So, so this kind of very neoliberal capitalist based form of development, you know, everything was about money and not necessarily about infrastructure or, you know, sort of improving water quality and sanitation in Afghanistan. And so even though there's tons of development and you can see so much reconstruction has happened in the country since we've been going there the infrastructurally it's pretty poor i mean you know the 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 sanitation in the capital city is just appalling to this day so it's clear that those organizations trade in a lot of money and i also was quite surprised to read that there were people making tens of thousands of dollars a month 
Um, but the other thing that they trade in um, is this idea you alluded to earlier, um, currency or grief currency. Um, so could you explain what grief currency is and how it emerges in relation to gender, to race and nationality, development and, and geopolitics? Mm-hmm. Sure. So grief currency, we came up with that, both gender and grief currency. Well, the grief currency, we were really interested in how certain forms of grief, both in Afghanistan and um, the grief of Americans who lost loved ones on 9-11, had this kind of cachet or currency or ability to raise funds uh, because it was such this you know, massive national tragedy in the U.S., that those who lost loved ones on 9-11 and chose to uh, raise funds in the name of their lost loved ones to then help Afghans were, were, they were heroes. I, they were heroes yeah. and they were quite successful in, in being able to raise funds, which was, which was very interesting. So, so, so in some ways it was this really um, kind of curious uh, intellectual project for us because you had, you know, all of this sort of hate mongering and Islamophobia happening in, uh, in the U.S. after 9-11 at the same time that you have this real sort of sympathy and concern for Afghanistan, partially because of the geopolitics and partially because um, of the way in which uh, the way in which these really kind of amazing people in some ways were were kind of tr- trying to turn their grief into something productive and, and raising money for for people they didn't even know in Afghanistan and really feeling a sense of connection. And that was another uh, thing that I found I was pretty astounded by when I was doing interviews of internationals, particularly Americans living and working in Afghanistan, as a number of them were New Yorkers who felt that they like felt the sense of connection to Afghanistan as like a sim- as um, almost like a they a similar sort of experience of, you know, terrorism or or being you know being victims of an attack and they felt drawn to afghanistan which was really interesting i also would say like the grief chapter was the hardest in a way to write because we we had to write it so sensitively yeah you know to 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 write about other people's grief and how that grief gets commodified and used and and becomes currency is and to write about it without accusing anybody I thought was right, very, right. It was very yeah, hard. Yeah, it was, it was I, a difficult chapter to write. And then also what we found interesting is that kind of uh, drawing on Judith Butler's work on grievability is who whose grief in Afghanistan had validity, you know, and and so it was it wasn't so much that because because her theory is that someone one you know, when someone is killed or died in war, like they're, you know, our ability to grieve for them has has a kind of a geopolitics to it, right, or a politics to it. So, so what we found interesting, it wasn't so much the Afghan women's deaths, but their lives that were grievable, meaning that these women, you know, these women and their suffering had had been so taken up geopolitically in the U.S. that it had, that we were, we, the sort of collective through this kind of geopolitical discourse were expected to grieve for their living suffering, not necessarily their deaths, but their living suffering that required in a, in a kind of discursive geopolitical way, the U.S. to come in and save them. I mean, we don't agree with that, but we saw, we saw that that, that's part of what was, that was the narrative that was happening. So you had this kind of living grief that had a currency, a geopolitical currency, and then of course a material currency that of the what we were just speaking about, and then you had this kind of intense grievability for individuals who lost their lives on 9/11, and and their surviving family members' ability to turn that grief into actual, you know, physical currency to then do this work in Afghanistan, because you know it. it and it was different, like it was represented in a different way than the aid and development mission. Like they were, there was this kind of sort of. Well, it was a DIY also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a do-it-yourself kind of development, which also um, added to the kind of cachet of what they were doing. I mean, we 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 know a lot of these people. We think they've done really extraordinary work and, 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 you know, just sort of gave so much of themselves, but it also was part of their healing process, which was, was also incredibly interesting for us as academics. I find that really interesting. And I think there's almost this intuitive jump and I I really kind of understood why you then turned to Agamben, um, because there seems to be this kind of intuitive jump to, okay, so, it's not, it's not that they're dead and they're being grieved, they're alive, they're being grieved. 
thus bear life. Um, but then you actually turn around and you critique Agamben. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about why kind of why you brought Agamben in and then uh, ultimately, I think, and rightly uh, jettison bear life? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, part of it is my intellectual, you know, love affair with Agamben. <laughs> to be honest, I was like so went on an Agamben like uh, binge <laughs> intellectually. Um, you know, when I was first a assistant professor, I just like read everything he wrote, and I was just like, oh, this is so amazing. And then, but then you collect all this data, right? And you start analyzing it, and you're like, hmm, I don't really. I, this isn't actually bare life. I, you know, and, and, and I, you know, and I read, you know, Derek Gregory's work and, you know, he really engages with the combat and I was, and we just weren't seeing it, you know, sort of, you know, no offense to Derek Gregory, but like the sort of difference between being more kind of armchair theorists and doing, you know, this really intimate, engaged research on the ground, you, you, you see a really different picture, you know? And so, so I think I started, you know, reading a lot of critiques of Agamben and then also, Rachel and I would discuss, you know, how how our kind of understanding of Afghanistan and the analysis of the data we collected over, you know, a decade started to reveal this whole other picture, which is where we another way we got to this more kind of currency of how how this was operating geopolitically, you know, because I think in some ways the yes, I agree with Gregory that David uh, Derek Gregory that. Um, the way in which the U.S., you know, in a military sense, sees these places as bare life and totally expendable and, you know, civilian populations are just collateral damage and all of that sort of thing. But at the same time, when you're looking at it from the ground up, <clears throat> a, a, a totally different kind, you know, and another way of thinking about it geopolitically also is emerging. So yeah, so there's that one sort of collateral damage way of thinking about civilian populations. But then there was the productive way in which civilians were also being used both by the military and the aid and development industrial complex, as you, as we, uh, everyone calls it, is a way of thinking about how that, uh, how, how the civilian also operates as a, as a geopolitical marker or, or can or in, in in the case of Afghanistan, how a gendered civilian body, ma- mainly a woman, can have a, a particular kind of currency that that sets them apart and, and doesn't sort of devolve into this kind of bare life, you know, reductionism. You know, so 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 I think in some ways they were sort of simultaneously happening, which is why we both engaged with the government and were critiquing the work. You know, because it, it had its limitations. Like it 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 works in some geopolitical instances, and then it falls apart in others because it was it's a complicated geopolitical narrative that's also being perpetuated to this day. Like I have students who were born, you know, weren't even, you know, were, were born on nine eleven or 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 before, and they and they've bought into this narrative, you know. So so that's kind of amazing to me. Um, it's, it's, I'm sorry, but it's also true that like um, the burqa as such is is it serves to perpetuate the bare life of women. Right, right. Like, well, the way in which people write about the burqa. But also, yeah. but also yeah. from the Afghan perspective, like here's this wall and there's mm. nothing behind it. I'm mean, not that that's true, but that's how it's meant to you know, appear. And so it, it does make it harder to see what's behind the wall. Right, know? right. Not and just because it's a burqa, but because you're not supposed to know that person's name mm. and have access to them and know anything about them. Or, you know, so there's a lot of reasons why um, that, that help make it easier to see it that way. I'm wondering if... Um... If you were writing about the burqa and the veil, uh, was somewhat reluctant. I mean, you engage with Middle Eastern feminists like Kendiati and Abu Luhad, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I, I found in a lot of that literature, there is that reluctance, right? Because it's it's the thing that everyone fixates on. So, I mean, how did you how did you negotiate kind of having to talk about this, um, but not wanting to portray it in a certain way? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt very reluctant about, you know, but at the same time, I also felt like I had to dive in a little bit, you know, because it was it's so fetishized and 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 so misunderstood um, in the U.S. particularly, you know, both both from seeing that in my classrooms and also, you know, just people sort of everyday talk in the U.S. about it. So I felt like I didn't want to add to the federalization, but I wanted to sort of talk about the way in which it, it 
operates in Afghanistan in these kind of multiple and interesting ways, you know, like when, when women wear it, when they don't, not all women wear it, you know, and the way, the way in which it, it actually provides can be, mobility. yeah, it provides mobility. It, it's, it's not a silencer. I mean, women are very vocal under their burqas, you know, it's sort of just dispelling some of the myths and also talking about how it, it, it really can be uh, helpful for women, you know, and, and it's, and it's a, you know, it's a form of, comfort uh, in some cases, you know, and that in some ways women also can see without being seen. So it allows them a particular kind of mobility that men don't have access to, Um, you know, and so, so I think getting into some of the like more practical everyday, you know, kind of going back to my feminist geography training, you know, these kind of intimate everyday ways in which women engage with, with, uh, with these garments was a way to kind of talk about it without, Kind of, without sort of refetishizing it, you know, that it isn't this, um, you know, that, that it's become with it, we've made it political, you know, and, and, and the Taliban made it political, frankly, as well, you know, like, it's not just the, that it's becoming politicized uh, from the West, but, you know, various, you know, kind of political Islamic extremist groups have made it political in a way that, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. Um, but like, for example, the Taliban making all women wear the burqa was, was counter to a lot of women's experiences because not all women in Afghanistan wear that particular type of head covering or, or body or outer garment, you know? And so, so I think that's another way of, uh, of addressing it is like, yes, the Taliban did this, but like in a cultural way or in a sort of everyday way, people's experiences of the, of, of the burqa or the veil are, are quite different and, and, and various. Right. I, did we talk about it in chapter five? Did we talk about the picture? And just right, right. Yeah. 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 About the yeah, use of it. But, but, it, but, uh, but uh, while we're naming names, <laughs> um, I remember back in the early, uh, the mid two thousands or whatever, 2003, whatever, um, for, there was a, a short little article in Newsweek magazine and it was like, Burkas, change of style in the burkas, they're getting shorter. It was like a hem, rising the hemlines, like it was a mini skirt, but it was the exact same burqa. Yeah. But the, the, the style of the burqa in Afghanistan is short in the front and long in, in the, the back. back. And yeah. they, like whoever had like written this article and taken this picture totally didn't even know what they were talking, talking about. That didn't yeah. stop it from showing up in news. And I was just like, what's different here? I don't get it. it yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then like the, the sexualization of it in the U.S. I mean, I, I wrote an article about this, I forget, I think in like 2000. 2009 or whatever about the different ways in which you know the the burqa and 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 various forms of head veiling have have also been sexualized by the west which which happened during colonialism you know there's all these trade and postcards of of women wearing veils but being but like showing their breasts or, or being sexualized you know so that has a long history and so kind of connecting it to that colonial history i think helped and 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 kind of describing how, you know, and a number of of women too, who veil in Muslim majority countries don't veil in when they're a minority because it it has the opposite effect, right? Like the veiling is, is to not be seen and and to be pious and modest. But when, when veiling makes you stand out, many women have chosen not to veil because it has the counter effect in a country where people stare at you because you're wearing a veil, you know? And so, so just trying to challenge some of the ways in which people, th- you know, assume they know everything about failing was a way to talk about it without refetishizing it. I hope. <laughs> You've talked about kind of one of the ways in which um, women's bodies are, are fixated on um, by this NGO industrial complex um, and by organizations like USAID. I think the other way that really came out in the book is with regard to labor and you talk about how um, there's this obsession with getting women to work as a way of kind of liberating or empowering them. Um, so where do you think that comes from um, and what makes it so powerful to everyone from donor organizations to, I mean, literally the people buying these goods in like pop-up hipster Christmas markets? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think part, I mean, a lot of it comes from you know, capitalism, obviously, and sort of, you know, Western liberal feminism, which Nancy Fraser wrote this amazing book called Fortunes of Feminism, which 
basically it, from a philosophical perspective, because she's a philosopher, a uh, philosophical perspective illustrates the way in which sort of, you know, kind of 1970s liberal Western feminism really worked for capitalism. You know, it, like capitalism just sucked it up. You know, it was like, okay, we have another workforce, we can pay them less, you know, and, and all these sorts of things. So, so I think that that idea has really been you know, just uh, become connected to a kind of gender and development platform where getting women out in the workforce and having their own money is seen as like a, you know, one plus one equals liberation, you know, so like women plus work equals that they will be, you know, if they have economic, they have control over their own money, they'll, they'll have social and political liberation, which, which in some cases has worked. And I would say so for some more elite women, sure, that, ha- that has made a difference, but not necessary for all women. Plus, in both of our experiences, we talked to so many women who they've been working, you know, women have been working for centuries in Afghanistan, they've been, you know, a low wage labor workforce for, for a, a amount of time. And the other sort of curiosity that that we found is that, you know, the, these women weren't making tremendous amounts of money. They weren't, it wasn't necessarily liberating them from, and it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, and it, men were very much a part of that process, you know? And so, so part of it was like, why are women being so separated out? And, and the assumptions that were made, being made about economic opportunity uh, were not did not always bear out. At the same time, though, we saw this kind of currency happening where women, particularly women that could work in international offices, so they had English skills, they had you know some office skills and that sort of thing. You know, they could actually make more money than men and have more flexible schedules because there were so few. There was fewer of them uh, women with those skills, and it was such it was such currency for the organization to have them there. So that was another interesting kind of thing that was happening is that, you know, women were able to, in some cases, make more money and have more flexible schedules and and cushier jobs because of the kind of currency of saying you had an Afghan woman working in your office. But then you had these women working in these really deplorable conditions in factories, you know, long hours, low pay. And the way it was being represented in the West is like, hey, if you buy this, you know, hipster, as you said, hipster Christmas market, if you buy this, whatever, scarf bag, you know, necklace, that somehow you're participating in the liberation of Afghan women. So so it was kind of like the the interesting marketing of it um, w- was alarming to us because we're, we're like, wait, we, if you make this trendy, what happens when it's not trendy to care about Afghanistan right. anymore? Kind of like now. Selling the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're selling the story instead of the actual quality of the product, which are incredibly beautiful quality, yeah. you know? And so we that was just sort of set off alarm bells um, with us because what, you know, what happens when, when it's not, the story when they don't anymore. want to buy the story anymore and, and it's not trendy. The world. I mean, right, I right. it's not unique. It just had its moment, you know, and it also had its moment to maybe not be cheap labor. But it right. Right. Cheap yeah, labor. yeah. Because in Afghanistan, you know, so, so many of these projects that were training projects by various big aid organizations to train women to do certain kinds of labor are the, you know, they, they can't compete with like cheap, goods coming from China, frankly, you know, like there's, and they were subsidized projects and they were subsidized they were projects. Right. So, so it wasn't, there wasn't an eye to sort of sustaining them. It, 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 like what we saw happening it's is it was this, this way of, you know, using Afghan women's labor to say, look what we're doing. We're liberating them. These women are, you know, now they're making money and they're more respected in their households and all of that. And sort of, you know, not, look, not trying, not looking at it with a long-term sustainable eye. Now that said, I mean, I think there there are, are a tremendous amount of Afghans that that have figured out how to, um, you know, be be business, you know, entrepreneurial and and start businesses in Afghanistan and internationally and send money home. And like um, Magnus Marston, his work is real. He's an anthropologist in the UK, and he does has done tremendous amount of research on kind of international trade, trade mar- markets trade and trade networks among Afghans you know, basically trying to push back against the myths that Afghans need us to save them when they're, they're, they're doing this kind of, you know, incredible economic kind of development on their, in, in their own ways through these massive international networks. So does that answer your question? Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think 
what what re- one thing that really impressed me about this book among many um was the way in which you use uh this ethnographic work with an organization or i guess two organizations um called rubia um and really kind of dive deep into into why certain kind of um development interventions didn't work by showing how one kind of did work in interesting ways and also the challenges that it ran into. So I'm wondering, Rachel, um, if you could talk a little bit about how Rubia came into existence um, and kind of what it faced and how it succeeded and sometimes did not. Sure. <laughs> so uh, so Rubia came out of a, an old friendship, basically, and um, that was revived in the late nineties, actually around 2000 and, um, and was, um, although I was the Western face of Rubio, the, uh, my job in many ways was to negotiate the international community for this community of Afghans that did not have those skills that Jennifer talks about, um, you know, English language and office skills and a way to engage with the international community. So this was, this was a rural community of refugees in Pakistan looking for a way to, get some money into their community and any which way. In fact, when they first approached me, they said, would you start a leather factory? And I was like, nope, can't do a leather factory. And we even thought about doing carpet weaving, but this was not a community of carpet weavers. Like you don't just take on carpet weaving if you're not from Northern Afghanistan, you know, if you're not of that ethnic group or whatever. And as we poked around and looked around, we saw that the basic skills that the women had in the community were embroidery. It was something that they did at home. So we decided to go with the least amount of equipment, the least financial investment, the most mobility, because people were just moving continuously in this uh, refugee community. And there was tremendous back and forth. Uh, to Afghanistan and just started an, a, an embroidery project. And what was different, there are so many embroidery projects in Afghanistan. Part of what was different is that we were um, we were using historical patterns of different ethnic groups um, looking to revive not just the patterns or to preserve them, but also the kinds of stitches. So embroidery isn't one thing, it's a lot of things and there are a lot of different skills. So it meant actually improving the women's skills, improving their ability to take instruction and get things done on time and all sorts of things that were never part of the plan when you, you know, when you're just embroidering at home. And and a really important part of this project was providing only so much work as could fit into somebody's life. And that was entirely different from the way people were doing it. It was never meant to be full-time work. It was never meant to be full-time income, but to be supplemental income in a household where women were under so much pressure to raise their children, clean their households, you know, just, just, there was so much homework to be done that this was meant to fit in within that um, context. And I think that's one of the things that made it different. In fact, there was um, pressure to give uh, at some times to give women more work than they could reasonably do. And um, we really held back and just said, no, this is as much work as anybody can have. So, yeah. And just to add, I mean, I'm going to toot your own horn a little bit, but, <laughs> but, but the, the, the one story that's actually also in the book is that, you know, they, which, which I think sets Ruby apart from all the other organizations that, that I was examining is, is that they privilege workers over the market. You know, in so many other organizations, the market was always king, you know, it was like what the market needs is what we'll do and, 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 you know, workers be damned. And I think, you know, that when, when they realized that even though one of the most popular types of of bags they were selling was this really hard wool that was very difficult for the women to embroider that they changed it up because they didn't want to these women to have you know additional burdens on their their already difficult lives you know like physically it was hard physically hard hurt their fingers but we didn't know that until until you did a survey we did a survey um uh, and and but it i mean it took a while to come out that like women kept saying can i embroider more shawls and finally like what's with the shawls you know it's like well it's not tearing up my fingers and i'm like tearing up people's fingers well that's the end of that you know right right but the fact that that was the end of that is, (laughs) is is was unique compared to so many other um other groups that were basically you know having women do do work and 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 advertising it as it and the other thing is ruby wasn't advertising like we're saving afghan women and we're doing in fact they were being pushed by other larger organizations to to represent their project in a very particular women-centric way even though like men were very involved in this project and there was like whole families involved in in making these products and and as as rachel just said like a supplementary income but the way they were pushed to sort of represent it to meet the narrative was also like 
why I was so interested in her project. It was like so interesting to see. And, and even the Ruby board, which I served on, I mean, we would actually have fights with the board members because they're like, we need to sell the story. They're not going to buy the bag. They're going to buy the story. And I'm like, no, we can't do that. You if know, they buy the bag, then, you know, we're, we're yeah, yeah, so, so yeah. Was, so, so, so it was interesting. Even the root, and the some members would of the not group, sell themselves. And that right, was really, right. I mean, that was yeah. that could be frustrating. And I think in the end, it it uh, it um, cut us off from certain opportunities because they're like, we're not going to say that we're so poor. We have dignity, you know. Right. And we're not going to say that that only women are running this when it wasn't true. And that's. That was very different from everybody else for many, many, many. And we were interviewing someone yesterday who even said, remember all those, you know, women run businesses? Well, of course, it was their husbands running, you know, getting the money. So, I mean, yeah, this was different. Yeah. You know, we, we, we were very careful. And as a result, I think it was very, it was um, very hard. One of the most interesting moments in the book is um, when one of your uh, NGO or one of the Rubia participants says, yes, you can take a photo of me, but only if it doesn't end up in a museum. <laughs> I know, I know. And boy, you know, so I, I think I talk in the book about the hang tag that we make yep, and, yep. and all the different, you know, who's, you know, how we could photograph and, you know, all, I mean, there was so much time and energy went into that. I actually right. gave another paper, another conference, which we should publish someday about that, the whole photograph. The whole, that the whole, um, yeah. The discourse. Well, and, and, and like Steve McCurry, you already named, but I mean, you know, that Afghan girl drama of National Geographic, which is so annoyingly frustrating. And, and Shah Mahmood Hanafi has this amazing article about Orientalism in Afghanistan that he really sort of does it an, an exceptionally great job of critiquing how that image was taken and, and how it's been perpetuated. But that image is also, you see that image a lot in Afghanistan. I mean, people, you know, t- t- it's on cars and mag- you know, like it's just sort of it's it's people everywhere. Ta- people have tattooed it. All people have tattooed it on themselves. I mean, so so it's also very ubiquitous in Afghanistan, which is part of why I think you know there is this concern, like oh my god, if you take my picture, where's it? What's going to happen to it? Right? Because that young woman, he didn't even ask her for permission to take her picture, and she had no idea that it was going to become this kind of international icon of, icon of Afghanistan. Yeah. So so anyway, yeah, I think that's part of the. You know, they're they're sort of concerned about these, you know, white folks coming in and and taking their images and doing whatever they want with it without permission. And and we did not want to fall into that um, category at all. I'm wondering, kind of thinking about, obviously, the people that you worked with saw themselves as geopolitical subjects in that way, right? And didn't want to be exploited in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you make kind of a very forceful argument that, I think the audience is academic, but it's also uh, a very accessible book. And it seems like you're kind of also speaking to NGO professionals um, and people in development. I'm wondering kind of how how you came to that and how you negotiated speaking to that audience. Yeah, well, I mean, part of both of us, we, you know, we worked with, met, become friends with people in that development and aid world. And so many of the people I interviewed I think we were also incredibly frustrated. Like they went to Afghanistan because they wanted to make it better and they wanted to be changed, you know, agents of change. And and they were themselves also frustrated of what they were seeing and how things weren't working out very well. And, and some people even left big organizations and started their own because they felt like a smaller organization could do more effective work than these big organizations that were just pouring money on, you know, in fact, this one guy I interviewed, he, he had the a great analogy. He was like, it's it's like the aid and development community or, uh, you know, these big aid organizations are pouring, you know, gallons of water in Afghanistan and only giving them a thimble to catch it, you know? And uh, so, so I think that, you know, we were hearing that frustration from that community. And also, I mean, frankly, I mean, I, I guess as a geographer too, I, I'm just like, I can't believe how little kind of geographic knowledge these big development organizations have. Like, they're just like, oh, we did it in Rwanda we're gonna, and Bosnia, and now we're going to do it in Afghanistan. Because they don't have to. Because they don't have like, to, they, right. They're not the people reading our book. Nobody I know <laughs> in native development has ever said to me, oh, I read your book and I and I, I disagreed or I didn't like it or anything. So it's not, they're not reading this. Yeah, even though yeah. We like them. We too. like them too. And we are we are speaking to that audience because they're, that's the data, it's their data. You know what I mean? Like, that's where that so much of the information from this book came from is from aid and development workers themselves i mean i you know interviewed hundreds of aid and development workers and it's their frustration that we're you know we've analyzed and 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 wrote through this book so you know so i wish they would complex development industrial complex does not need to get it right and 
They just don't. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. They need I to mean, spend it's the colonialism. Money. They need to spend the money. They right. don't need to actually care or 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 engage or or any of the things and, and that's just the bottom line yeah yeah because i mean the right. the special investigator general for afghan afghanistan reconstruction or the cigar which is a uh, a special organization that was set up by the u.s in like the mid-2000s he you know john sopko is like our you know hero, hero of ours because you know he's saying very similar things that we're saying you know but but has that that you know the sort of policy backing behind. I mean, people all do read his stuff and they, they do listen to him. And, but what's happening though, it's kind of, that's, that's the frustrating thing is like, we we're like so excited that someone within the government is saying very similar, exactly the same things we're saying. And we're, and we're citing him all the time. Like, where did all this money go? But at the same time, it's, we're not seeing a massive reorganization of, of aid or state or, you know, the sort of way in which, I mean, you you know, you're having, (laughs) it's a bad day when like the military seems to be getting it more right than, than aid and development. I mean, like there, you know, there's more military, um, especially enlisted folks that are out there in the villages and actually engaging with Afghans or, or attempting to sort of like, they're doing, you know, sort of more, direct contact kind of aid and development than these big organizations because because of their security protocols they can't even go into an afghan home they can't even you know really connect with people on an on a on a personal kind of intimate you know level and and i think that and, and that's a i think that's part of the problem too this is a point that you make throughout the book um is that kind of like this large scale model of development almost necessarily creates a situation where there's a lack of equality, a lack of partnership between kind of like the foreign workers and what you sort of strategically and like you bracket this, but you call them like local Afghans. I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if, and you, you also talk about how small scale efforts, while not perfect, tend, tend to work better and have more opportunities to work better. better. Um, so I'm wondering if you think that kind of like the equal partnership between developer and like quote unquote developed um, that I think we should aspire to, if that's even possible in a context like this, um, and w- what it might look like if it is possible. Yeah, well, I think part of the problem is trying to render Afghanistan to look like rec- to be recognizable to Westerners, right? You know, so 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 there, you know, so much of this development is trying to make them more like us, so we can understand them instead of understanding them and and working with their strengths. I mean, that's the thing I think Rubia did is they is is uh Rachel and her Afghan partners like figured out what their strengths were and and tried to work on that and improve improve their lives economically by working on existing strengths instead of starting something that no one knew anything about. And I think, you know, there's so many things that Afghan Afghans are are good at and they're they have incredible capabilities because and that was a another visible it's invisible to the internationals because they would always be like lack there's lack of capacity like they don't have any capacity but there was no recognition of what they had capacity for you know so yeah maybe they don't have capacity for a particular way of putting together a spreadsheet but there was all kinds of capacity to manage life and livelihood that wasn't necessarily being recognized. So, so that, I think that's, um, you know, so I don't know if, so the you know, to your question is, is like, <laughs> like, like, what are we trying to develop? Like, and, and in some ways it's sort of, you know, it, it, it it seemed like everyone was trying to get Afghanistan ready for mineral extraction, you know, or, or some kind of way which bigger, more economically robust countries could um, profit from rather than actually working with Afghans in a way that, that would be beneficial to them. And, and I think that's the real tragedy here is a, a complete lack of understanding of what, what is working well and how people have survived. And a lack and, of interest. I still think yeah, it's just yeah. like, even if they did understand it, I'm not sure that they could. It's, it's not the bottom line. line right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can hear a little bit right. of cynicism here. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Because the, what's being reflected is that these projects are in, in pursuit of geopolitical strategy and not, you know, improving people's lives. Right, right. And economic opportunism, you know, that it's not about making Afghans' lives better. It's about people capitalizing on that. Now, I think there are a tremendous amount of people who are trying to make Afghan lives better and are doing the really hard and difficult work. And that's kind of what we're trying to work on now is sort of figuring out who is doing 
doing well by Afghans and how are Afghans themselves trying to figure out where their country's going and what, and what they're, what they want to do in the future. And that's, you know, we're trying to tell that other story now. That's a good segue. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time and there's so many more stories in this book. I would have loved to be able to talk about Soraya um, and a lot of other things um, that, uh, that are really well, kind of well written um, and really make forceful points. Um, but people will just have to read the book, I think. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? And it sounds like you continue to work together, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah. That's when you know you have a really good friend when you can write a book together and still want to work together afterwards. So, um, yeah, so we we actually um, had a uh, kind of post this book. We did a two-year study or over two years uh, study of uh, Afghan women's roles in, in peacebuilding and conflict mediation that was funded by the UN's, U.S. Institute for Peace. Um, and we're working on writing that up now. And then that kind of segued into a, a new project that's sponsored by the National Science Foundation that's looking at Afghan women's leadership through the lens of kind of uh, security development and gender. And so we're we're in the process of collecting data from Afghan women leaders at various scales. So both at the kind of national, you know, elected position or women that are recognized at that scale of the nation or, or regionally as being leaders. And then we're also looking at how women's leadership is seen in the home and in at the more at this kind of village and community scale. And then part of why we're doing that is to understand how women are actually influential in ways that are, are invisible to internationals and invisible in some ways to men in Afghanistan too. And so we want to, we want to kind of sort of understand how and and write about the ways in which women are figuring out how to, how to work with patriarchy, how to work with international kind of uh, capitalism, if you will, and geopolitics and how to navigate political Islam simultaneously. So we're sort of looking at the sort of uh, overlapping categories of Islam sort of leftist groups and more capitalist based, you know, liberal feminist uh, influence groups and, and to see sort of the the different ways in which women are negotiating these various influences on their lives and themselves influencing politics in Afghanistan. So that's, that's where we are now. Yeah. And it's, we're just in the, Initial phases we're doing. We're we're here actually in uh, doing interviews in the U.S. with Afghan women leaders, and we're um, I'll be in Afghanistan this summer conducting interviews as well. So so that's that's our our next project. That's really exciting, um, and I'm looking forward to read what comes out of that. Um, in the meantime, the book is uh, the Carpetbaggers of Kabul. Uh, and other American-Afghan entanglements, intimate development, geopolitics, and the currency of gender and grief. It's out from University of Georgia Press. Jennifer and Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Yes, thank you. And that's it for this this week's show. Thanks for listening. And as always, you can send any questions or suggestions to us on Twitter at NewBooksGeog. And it's been a pleasure. And we'll talk to you next week.